Hear the word of the Lord. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. And the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who, re- who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you trusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid, and I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well then, you should have my money on you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers, so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has ten bags. For whoever has will be given more, and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Sojourn. Peace be with you. My name is Travis. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, today is the second week in our series on the parables of Jesus Christ. Um, Jesus um, spoke at a particular time and place, and he often spoke in the uh, in the form of parables, which are stories. And um, Jesus speak, uh, spoke about things that um, uh, were in his day um, important and controversial. Um, and in our day, um, such things are also important uh, and at times controversial. Um, just to let you know, kind of a conviction of our church with regards to preaching is we, we want Um, the Bible to set the agenda of the preacher. Um, The truth of the matter is, in the history of Christianity, every single subject has been controversial at some point in time. Um, Even the subject of prayer, right? It's kind of something in America that generally, I mean, it may cause some controversy, but in general, people are fine with saying, you know, can I pray for you or whatever, you know, but you look at the history of a man by the name of Daniel, he he got thrown into a lion's den over prayer. And so, and so our, our desire in this church is to speak to those things which God speaks to um, and not necessarily to uh, concern ourselves with the controversy because money's controversial because you're just not supposed to talk about it. The kingdom's controversial because this is America and we believe in democracy and what is the kingdom? 
And judgment is controversial because that's just so morbid now, isn't it? And yet um, our Lord um, saw it fit to speak about all those things. So today we, uh, we start in the parable of money uh, from Matthew chapter 25. Earlier this week, um, well, I guess it was last week by this point in time, the weeks start on Sunday, right? I'm very bad with calendars and dates and stuff. And so um, now, though the weather does not bear witness at the moment, it was freezing cold this time last week. Um, we live in the Ohio Valley in the Midwest and Southern Indiana, and so therefore we have all four seasons. It is possible to have all four seasons in the course of a week, okay? So we went from winter to spring. We may experience summer um, before the day is up. Um, it is possible to experience all four seasons, really, in the course of one or two days. And so... But when it was um, freezing cold, uh, I have a personal policy is I don't, I don't wear a coat unless it's in single digits. It's just kind of a, one of my legalistic tendencies. And, uh, but if it's single digits, it's fine to wear a coat and or if you're going to, to be um, in the snow. And I also have children and they wanted, they wanted to go sledding. And I said, yes. And the other thing about me um, I like policies, I like procedures, and, and the other part of me is if I say yes, I feel this overwhelming burden to uphold my own word. The other part of me is that I don't like to have fun. I don't, um, you, know, you guys laugh about that, and I'm being completely honest. Like, this is supposed to be a safe place, you can be transparent, but every time I say that, people are like, oh, everybody likes to have fun. No, I don't, actually, <laughs> you know. But my kids like to have this thing that the general population calls fun. And so they said, Dad, can we go sledding? And I said, yes, so therefore I have to do it. Now, um, what, I, I don't well, like, want things out of life. You know, like, I, the, so you periodically get asked this question, where do you want to be in five years? And I'm like, I know where I don't want to be in five years. You know, I don't, I, I don't want to be in a place, like, I, I want to be in a place where people don't ask me that question. Like, but, but, like, it's what I don't want out of life that kind of motivates me. And so did I want to go sledding? No, I don't want to go sledding, but my kids want to go it, so I've got to uphold my word. You see how neurotic and how much energy it takes for me to come to any kind of conclusions. And so, um, so what, what, I, what we had to do is we had to get ready because we got to reduce the problems. What I don't want out of life is I don't necessarily want to go to the emergency room, okay, which... When you're sledding, and we were going to go to, to, to Community Park, okay, on Grant Line Road, on that backside, that massive mountain of a thing. And so think about sledding. Like, you're going to get on a plastic missile, essentially, travel about 40 miles an hour, and have no ability to steer, okay? See? That's fun, okay? I'm making a really good argument against this, but I said yes, so I had to follow through with it. So hard. So hard being me at times. So... My children, I have three children, 18 months, 66 months, and 112 months. And so uh, I don't know the rule on when you stop saying months, so that's, that's their ages. And uh, so we got them ready. The 66-month-old and the 112-month-old can basically get themselves ready. Need a little bit of direction from dad, so put on two pairs of socks, you know, get on your snow boots, so on and so on. The 18-month-old, he needs me. Okay, he can't necessarily, I'm going to move this tambourine because he'll get Pentecostal here in a moment. But, 
Um, the the 18-month-old, he needs me to get him ready, and so he doesn't realize that he needs to get him me to get him ready, and he doesn't agree with the procedure and the policies that I'm implementing on him and my will that I'm imposing on him. And so after about, you know, four minutes into our grappling match, uh, being a self-sufficient, you know, self-respecting man, I said, honey, I need your help. Uh, and, and my wife came to the rescue. She has the gift of being obvious, okay? And she she said when she showed up about my child, somebody else has the gift of being obvious or somebody. She said, Travis, he's sweating. Well, I didn't say this, okay? So here this is personal, like, internal processing. It's like, well, yeah, we've been in, like, a judo match for the last three minutes. Uh, he better be sweating. I better have enough strength that I can make an 18-month-old, you know, sweat a little bit. And, uh, but I didn't. I said with, with grinding teeth, because I was frustrated, because Christians only get frustrated, they don't get angry. I just said, he's not going to be for much longer. <laughs> dot, dot, dot. Just help me, okay? I, so anyway, which what I meant was like he was going to be in the cold. I was like, whenever I was thinking about saying that, I was like, there's a police officer outside. I mean, the way that sounds, but anyway... We, after, I'm sweating now, but after, uh, after all of that fuss, we finally got on. Uh, we finally got the clothes on. We eventually ended up at, at Community Park. But um, the reality is, is what, like our future destination was determining why we were going through just this, this miserable process of trying to get everybody dressed and, and bearing with the heat because, you know, it's 68 in our house, but we're, we're dressed for, you know, below zero weather. And the destination was what part of what, you know, made me be forced to, you know, follow through on my word. I had to, I had to keep my word to my kids by that point in time, and I had to kind of go through the struggle and all the pain and the suffering and the sacrifice that you make. Why? Because, because we were going someplace where, where there was going to be snow and it was going to be cold. It was the destination that was determining why it is that we were going through this mess of a process. The same is true about really everything in our life. If you're going to run a race, you have to determine the finish line before you start running the race. Why? Well, because the finish line, where it's at, will determine how fast that you go and how much that you do and, and the pace at which you will you will race and, and how much you need to practice and, and fill in the blank. And, and, and that reality is, a, is an essential aspect of the Christian faith, that Christians have a destination. One of the most important questions that anybody can answer is, is how, uh, how long do we have on this earth? How much time do we have? What does life look like after, after this life has ended? Where will I go when I die? Those are some of the most important questions that anyone could ask and, for that matter, answer. And the way you answer those questions determine the course and the direction you will go with your life. For the Christian, the Christian has a destination. And that destination is a personal, face-to-face -face encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ. We will see him one day and our faith will give way to sight. And that is where we, and we believe all people, are headed towards, and so that charts the course. And so everything that we do in life is, uh, is related to, uh, to that destination, the pace that we are taking 
what it is that we're doing, the choices that we make, what it is that we endure for this period of time in this, this life that we have been given by God. And that matters in every aspect of our life, but specifically, it matters with regards to our financial life. It matters with regards to how we handle our money and and what it is that motivates us to be a generous people. In the passage that is before us today, our Lord Jesus um, has a teaching, and he's using a parable, he's using a story to illustrate how the second coming, that future destination, that time when we encounter Jesus face-to-face in all of his power and glory, how that is to motivate believers in this life right now to become a generous people. The specific story that he will use is of a master and his three servants and how he entrusted wealth to them and how they responded to that during the delay before he comes to settle accounts with them. And so it's with all these things in mind that it is my prayer that you hear God saying to you personally that our generosity flows from our hope. Our generosity flows from our hope. Now, how is it that our generosity flows from our hope? Well, I believe that there are three reasons why our generosity flows from our hope. First, our hope is is fueled by a sense of urgency. Our hope is fueled by a sense of urgency. Second, our hope compels us to take risks. Our hope compels us to take risks. And then third, our hope will be rewarded one day. First, our hope is fueled by a sense of urgency. So Matthew 25 is the second part of a larger teaching of Jesus that begins in Matthew 24. And in Matthew 24, verse 3, our Lord says this, or excuse me, his disciples ask him personally a question, and it says this, when will this happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? They want to know Um, specifically a specific question. They want to know about the second coming of Jesus. Jesus has taught, I mean, he was there, and what Christianity believes is that God in the person of Jesus Christ has come. Um, He has taken upon flesh. He was born of the Virgin Mary, and he lived, and he died on a cross, and he rose from the dead. And And he is exalted at the right hand of God. So right now, at this very moment, Jesus Christ is seated at the right hand of God, completely victorious because his work on this earth is completed. The book of Hebrews states that the nature of his ministry now, that he is in the presence of God and he intercedes for us. And at the same time, Jesus spoke very often, very often about his second coming. That is the time when he would come when he would come back to the earth to rescue his people and he would put an end to suffering and sin in this world and he would come, as the apostles would say, to judge the living and the dead. One of the most common messages in the book of Acts, if you read through the book of Acts, is actually not the cross of Christ. One of the most common messages is the resurrection and the return of Jesus Christ. It is found far more often This does not diminish the importance or the centrality of the cross, but it does show that the apostles apostles expanded the gospel with a sense of urgency. 
because they knew that Jesus had promised and he was going to make good on his promise that he would come one day. And so here he tells a story and he says what this, what this second coming will look like, the day when he will return to the earth. He says this in Matthew 25, verse 14, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. Verse 19, so there is him going away, the master is going away for a period of time, and here is his return. Verse 19, after a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. So he says that it's, it's like whenever somebody leaves for a period of time. It's like when the master leaves and he gives his wealth to his servants. And then eventually he will come back. So there's a sense of urgency. Have you ever had anybody come over for dinner? My wife and I had, uh, had someone come over for dinner this week. And, and there's a sense of urgency whenever somebody's coming over for dinner, right? You don't clean the closets if somebody's going to be in the dining room, okay? What do you use the closets for? To throw all your trash in there so they don't see it, right? That's maybe not what you do. That's what I do, okay? I don't care what this looks like. I care what the dining table looks like or something like that, okay? There's a degree of urgency. You need to get ready because a time is coming. So there's a sense of urgency. There's a sense of urgency because he's left for a period of time and he will return. And what has he done? He's entrusted, he's entrusted a degree of wealth to these men. There were three servants. He entrusted not... He entrusted to them not their own wealth, but his wealth. This is what the passage says. The passage says that, that the wealth that the, that the servants had wasn't actually theirs, but it was their master's. How does that strike you? How does that strike you that from the perspective of Jesus, the wealth, the money, the finances that his people have is his, and not theirs. It's a declaration from Scripture. We read it earlier. Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Deuteronomy 8, verse 18 says, You shall remember the Lord, for it is He who gave you the power to get wealth. So even the Everything that we have is, is a gift from God, okay? And including, though it's contrary to the kind of typical, hardworking, good Midwestern Hoosier ethic, which is I get up every morning and I go to work. Even the very gumption to get up in the morning is a gift from God. The fact that we have got up in the morning is a gift from God. And so the scriptures acknowledge this reality that everything that we have is a gift from God, including our very life and the very gumption that we have. The fact that we have a job, if you have a job, is a gift from God. And therefore, though it may seem audacious, Jesus Christ has the right to say, what's mine is mine, and if I gave it to you, it's mine. Everything about what it is that Jesus does declares his lordship. Now, my question would be, is the same true for us? What about, what about your finances? What about your budget? What about how you handle your money declares that Jesus is Lord? 
that he's the master of your house, that he's the master of your finances. There's a degree of urgency because our Lord is coming. And so let us be a church who, while we have the opportunity, can be generous. Like you, I think about this at times with regards to like missions and evangelism, with the expanse of the gospel. But do you know that the time is coming where there will be no more need to, to send out missionaries, to send out church planners, to witness to people face to face? Do you realize the day's coming when that will be no need? Because Jesus will come back and then those opportunities will be over. And does that create a sense of urgency? My prayer is that we will be people who, while we have the opportunity, will be generous. Because that's only for a period of time. We have a certain destination and a hope. And that is a face-to-face encounter with the Lord Jesus. And, and I, can't, I can't witness to everybody in the world. I wish I could. I can't, I can't plant every church in the world. I can't I can't be a missionary to every people. I can't be all things to all people all at the same time because I'm limited. But what I can do is I can make sacrifices and I can give so that somebody else can do the same. Second, our hope compels us to take risks. So the master leaves and then the servants get to work and they they take his wealth and then they they respond by getting to work. Notice here what it says in verses 15 through 18. To the one he gave five bags of gold and to another two bags and to another one bag, each according to his ability. And then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five more bags. So also the one with two bags gained two more. But the one who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. So here what happens is, is it's, it's straightforward. You have three servants, but you have two ways that they handle the master's money. Two of them take that money and they, they take a risk. They invest it. Okay, They put it to work and and the third, the third servant doesn't take a risk. He plays it safe and he buries it. Now, what's the difference in the responses? Like, what, what would cause these, these three different men to respond in really two ways? You would think if it's three men, they're, they're all individuals. They all could respond in, in their own ways. But here Jesus says there, there were two basic ways that these people res- responded. Some took a risk, invested it, got a return, and the other one buried it. I believe the passage indicates there was something different in the way the first two servants viewed their master. Notice here what it says in verse 20. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. Verse 22, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. And then this stands in complete contrast to verse 24. Then the man who had received one bag of gold said, Master, I knew that you were a hard man 
harvesting where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. The first two men perceived something about the goodness of their master. They they perceived something about the goodness of their master, so much so that they say, you entrusted me with your wealth. And so as a result, I invested it. He was, a, he was a good master, but that stands in contrast to the third servant who says, I, I was afraid. I perceived this about you, and I know about you that you, that you harvest in, in places that you haven't sown, and, and so on and so on. He, he fills in the blanks. And notice that the third servant actually had details and, and, and an accurate understanding of Uh, of the theology, essentially. He understood doctrine well. He understood things about the master. But what happened? How was their responses different? One perceives, two perceive his his goodness, and they they invest it, and then they they bring it back. But the third, it's not that he went out and, and frivolously spent the money. It's not that he went out and, and and he consumed it himself. He just didn't do anything with it. He was afraid. In the scriptures, you see here that their actions proceed. Their actions go before their confessions. In one sense, in one sense, confession is can be difficult. But it, but in another sense, it it only costs you so much to acknowledge right things about God. But these men, their actions precede their confession. What the, their giving records displayed the goodness of Jesus Christ. Based on your giving records, how good is Jesus Christ? How good is he? Well, I, I've been in church for a period of time. I know that there's this, you know, this kind of typical American public interaction where somebody says God is good, somebody says all the time, all the time, God is good. That's easy to say, and it's kind of rhythmic. But how good is he? There's something else to acknowledge here. I want to ask you, like, when the subject of money comes up, what emotions come to the surface? When the subject of money comes up, what starts churning on the inside of you? It's clear to me in Scripture. It's clear. This isn't the only passage. Jesus will speak about money often. And guess what? Nearly every single time, the inward elements of of our hearts begin to be exposed, and he often speaks about emotions. Now, is fear merely an emotion? No, it's not. Fear is also tied to what you think and the choices that you make. And so when the Bible speaks about the heart, it's talking about that center of us, that inward part of our souls that that are related to what we feel and what we think and and what we choose to do. And so they all play into each other. Now, when I was a young Christian, I thought there was like this linear movement. Change people's minds, you'll change their hearts, and then they'll choose otherwise. 
Then I kind of grew up and got a little bit of life experience, and I realized that, you know what? It just, the flow chart just wasn't like this. I really wish it was. No, it, it's more like this or something like that. Maybe not entirely that way, but you get what I'm saying. I'll start some dance ministry or something in here, but... It, it's, much, it's much more nuanced. But what is clear to me is that emotions are, are brought to the surface when the subject of money comes up. I know, that, I know that's true in Scripture, and my life confirms it. I'd said in the last service, my, my father, from the time he was a freshman in high school to the time he was a senior in high school, had two shirts and, and one pair of pants. My mother's from Cairo, Egypt. At times, they were so poor and destitute, they had flour, sugar, and cinnamon to make food, and that was it. They had spices, essentially. And, and my mother, compared to other cousins, were kind of middle class. It kind of gives you perspective on the poverty outside of her context. So I know from personal experience that, that, that when I was growing up, that when the subject of money came up, like, oh, there's all kinds of feelings that's going to start taking place. And then whenever I established my own home, like all good young married people, I knew I was going to right all the wrongs of my parents, okay? Specifically with regards to money. I haven't done that, just to let you know, Okay. It hasn't happened that way. Because when the subject of money comes up, there's all kinds of, there's fears and there's desires and there's lusts for more and there's all kinds of things that begin to take place. And I shouldn't be surprised by that because that's in the scriptures. And then for that matter, <laughs> when Christians get together and the subject of money comes up, how many of you have come from churches where... <laughs> when the subject of money came up, right? The good old Baptist business meeting or something like that. Money comes up and the boxing gloves come off, okay? They get they bare-knuckle fighting or something like that. Well, what is that doing? It's the subject of anger. People leave. Why? They make a statement. All they talk about is money, dot, 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 and it made me mad. Or... In the history of our church, in the history of Sojourn, we, we, we know what we don't want. We don't want that. We don't want that kind of history. We don't want that kind of story. So what do we do? We're afraid. And so we don't talk about the subject. Let us be a church who will take a risk. Let's be a church who will take the risk and have the conversations. So for some of you, it's within your own home. Husbands and wives need to have the conversation. Look, when the subject of money comes up, this is what takes place internally. This is what happens. It, it exposes a lot of fears. I get very concerned. I, I don't like the way we're spending. I, I wish we were saving more or whatever it is. Find a trusted Christian friend that you can say, this is where I'm at when the subject of money comes up. Speak, to, speak about it in your community group, but let's, let's take a risk and let's, let's speak about it. Why? Well, because God speaks about it, and guess what God says? God says that that, that subject invokes a response. So let's take a risk.
And then third, our hope will be rewarded one day. So as Jesus um, continues this parable, um, he, he speaks about the time whenever he, he finally comes, the master of the house finally comes, and the servants, he comes to settle the accounts. And there's two, because there were two ways of handling money, there were two different responses from the master. The first two men hear the same thing. And it says this, like in verse 21, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. It's it's amazing to me that 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 there's public there's public praise. Not not in the sense of like worship or adoration, but in the sense of of almost encouragement. There's some sort of acknowledgement about about the character of the servant, that he's he's good and he's faithful, okay? Not necessarily good and resourceful, not even necessarily good and generous, but he's good and faithful. And and did you see that, that what the master says is that your generosity now is preparing for you something else? Yet you've been faithful over little, and I will make you ruler over much. And, and I don't entirely know what that means. I know that the scriptures will say that the meek shall inherit the earth. So in some way in the kingdom of God, the economy will be, I don't know, will, we, will those who have been faithful, will they, will they steward the Rocky Mountains? Will, will they steward the oceans? I know that this life and the way we steward our resources is preparing for us something that Jesus has got in store for us. And then he he gives them an invitation. He says, come and share. Come and share in a place that is marked by your master's happiness. Now this stands in contrast to the last servant. Where Jesus says this, his master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gathered where I have not scattered seed? Throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The place for the first two servants is marked by happiness and the place by the last Servant is marked by grief and anger, weeping and gnashing teeth. And what's bothersome to me about that, and we need to hear the warning, is, is that that servant was accurate in his theology about the master. So you knew, is what he says. I've lived in Indiana all my life. And the citizens of Indiana, commonly known as Hoosiers, have a great affection for religion, specifically the Christian religion. And so they know. But what what and who we value is what determines what we do with our money. Like how do you make decisions about with regards to money? My question would be is what do you value? And if Jesus isn't worth it now, then what, what value would it be to be in a place that's marked by his presence? 
As I mentioned earlier, my uh, children and I were gathering up to go to Community Park. And here's something about me more than you probably want to know, but uh, is I, I really feel guilty when I lose my temper. I feel particularly guilty when I lose my temper. I start to lose my temper in front of my kids. And we finally got in our vehicle, and I, I, when I, I'm feeling guilty and I start replaying things, I start spinning out, we, my wife and I unaffectionately call it. And, um, and what, what are my kids going to remember about this day? They're going to remember the sledding. They're going to remember how dad lost his cool. What are they going to remember about this day? Are they going to remember that they were going to do something that the common population calls fun, you know? Um, or are they going to remember, you know, how, how dad acted, how dad ruined it? And so we, we eventually got to Community Park, and, and we, we got on the plastic missile, you know? And, and what is it that my kids have had? Well, it's, it's commonly called fun, okay? I don't necessarily know if it's fun or not, okay? I was watching them, and their, their mouths were turned upward, and they were saying, like, we and ooh and yahoo and, you know, things like that, which generally are connected to things that people refer to as fun. But, <laughs> which, another thing about me is, like, there's never enough information for me to make me really feel good, so I'm just, I'm, like, inherently skeptical. It, it's... A really awful way to live your life, but uh, anyway, you, yeah. I guess I should. Oh, I owe you guys money for being my therapists today. But, um, but eventually, but I didn't necessarily know. I didn't necessarily know. Did my kids actually have fun? I mean, the evidence seems to point to it. Didn't necessarily know. What happens in the evening at my home is whenever we eat dinner together. Is I generally I try to engage everybody in a conversation. I also don't like change, so I always kind of like do the same things all the time. I always ask my kids a couple of questions. What was the hardest part of today and what was the best part of today? Uh, and the order of those is all based on my own insecurities, if I'll be honest. And uh, I was personally concerned that the hardest part of the day was dad, okay, because I lost my temper. And so I said to my, you know, 112 and 66-month-old, you know, what was the hardest part of the day? I don't actually remember what they said. It's what you don't want out of life. And so they didn't say me. <laughs> so thanks be to God for that. And so then I followed up with the second question, and now my hopes are kind of up because I'm like, oh, it's going to be dad. And it, and it wasn't dad. It was the sledding fun thing uh, that they did. And my oldest son said, Dad, what was your favorite part of the day? And I said, um, seeing you guys happy. That was my favorite part of the day. I didn't see it whenever we were trying to get ready. I didn't see it whenever trying to put on fleece clothes and trying to get out the door. I didn't see it whenever I got in the car and struggling on all my potential failures and what the future is going to look like and what I've done right or wrong as a dad. I mean... Though in one sense it was obvious, I should have seen it whenever they were sledding. Couldn't really see it. There's evidence there, but, you know, not really sure. But eventually I saw it. 
The Christian has a destination. And on that day, we're going to encounter a place that is called the place of happiness. Sometimes I wonder, are we going to, are we going to see the people? We're going to see the people who came to faith in Christ because we, we sent missionaries overseas. Are we going to, what, what will their faces look like? Be marked by happiness. But even more than that, like the day is coming. Do you realize this? The day is coming, Christian, when you're going to look at Jesus face to face. There's no more faith. It'll all be sight. And he'll be smiling. and He'll say, he's not going to say, well done, my good and perfect servant. And he's not going to say, well done, my good and even generous servant. And he's not going to say, well done, my good and, and effective servant. He's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Lord. What a day that'll be when my Jesus I will see. When I look upon his face, one who saved me by his grace. That's the hope that we have according to the word. And it is the hope that is revealed and demonstrated for us in the Lord's Supper. Because on the night when Jesus was betrayed for a small amount of money, he took a loaf of bread and he broke it and he says, this is my body broken for you. Take, eat of it. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup of wine and after giving thanks, he says, this cup is the cup of the new covenant sealed by the shedding of my blood. Take, drink of it. Do this in remembrance of me. For every time you eat from this bread and you drink from this cup, you announce the Lord's death until he returns. Until he returns and he speaks before the angels and the saints about his happiness in you. If you are a Christian, I invite you to come forward. Whenever I get done praying and the musicians begin playing, there will be stations throughout the auditorium. Our practice here is to tear off a piece of the bread, dip it in the juice or the wine, whatever your conscience permits. The wine will be marked by a piece of twine, and there will be gluten-free elements to my left and to your right, if that will serve you. If you're not a Christian, I ask that you please... Please respect our tradition here. Please do not partake of the Lord's Supper. But, but I pray that you'll consider, consider your future destination. And I, I pray that you will you'll give your life and your heart to Christ and that you will trust him by faith. There, after uh, the end of the service, there will be servants who will be available to pray with you, to ask, answer your questions. Please take Christ. Let's pray together.